The passage we're looking at this morning, which Tom just read, and thank you, Tom, for reading Mephibosheth is not an easy name to say, so thank you. This chapter is all about loving kindness. Three times in these 13 verses, you will see the word kindness. It's the theme of this chapter. But it would be a mistake for us to read this and come away merely thinking, wow, David was a really kind king. That is true. David was a really kind king. But this is not mainly about David's kindness. This is about God's kindness. We're meant to see through David straight to God. And verse 3 makes that point so clearly. David says in verse 3, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Not the kindness of David, the kindness of God. This is God's kindness on display through David. When God describes himself, one of the things he says about himself is he is abounding in kindness. There are so many examples of God doing this. One is where God declares his name to Moses in Exodus 34.6. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The word steadfast love is the same Hebrew word for kindness in 2 Samuel. Our God is abounding in steadfast love, in kindness. So my prayer is that God would help us see afresh his kindness through 2 Samuel 9. But before we dive in, will you pray with me one more time? Father, would you show us Christ in your word this morning? Would you help us to see your loving kindness. No one here needs to hear or see me, but we desperately need to hear from you. Make much of yourself and cause the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts to be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The events of 2 Samuel 9 take place at a high point in Israel's history and in David's reign. The people of Israel have been fighting enemies on all sides, and God has been giving them victory after victory after victory at this point. And things have settled down as God is giving his people some rest. And it says in 2 Samuel 8:15, so David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. So God was greatly blessing his people and his servant David. But then in chapter 9, we shift from all the war victories to something more personal for David. It says in verse 1, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? David is looking to show kindness to a descendant of Saul, which begs the question, why on earth would David want to do that? Saul spent a lot of time trying to kill David, even though David had done nothing wrong. He lied to David repeatedly. He threw spears at him. It wasn't exactly what you would call a friendly relationship. But now, David wants to show kindness to one of Saul's descendants, which was a risky thing to do. At this time, when a new king began to rule from a new family, he would wipe out the previous royal line so that there would be no one left to gain power or influence and usurp the throne from them. You didn't want the previous royal line alive or at least gaining any power. So why does David want to do this? Well, the answer is right there in verse 1. Look again 
And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So David is doing this because he made covenant promises to Jonathan. You might remember when Pastor Brent was preaching through 1 Samuel that David and Jonathan loved each other deeply. And they made a covenant together. Jonathan said to David in 1 Samuel 20, If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So David promised to show steadfast love to Jonathan's house. And it's about somewhere 15 or 20 years before 2 Samuel 9 takes place. And yet, over all those years, David's faithfulness to his covenant promises has not changed. And here we see the first glimpse of David displaying the loving kindness of God. If David kept his covenant promises to Jonathan, how much more will God keep his covenant promises to us, his people? Years go by, and God's dedication to his promises has not wavered one bit. God has not forgotten his promises to us. Our God cannot forget his people. Isaiah 49 says that our names are graven on his hands. Jesus' heavenly body bears scars. He has remembered all the promises he has made. He has sent his son to die and rise again and purchase all the promises of God for us. Galatians 3.29 says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to to the promise. God will keep every promise he has made. He will keep every promise he has made. He does not go back on his covenant. He fulfills it in his perfect timing, which is so helpful for us to know all the time, but especially right now as our country seems to be running from God. Without eyes of faith, the future looks very uncertain, doesn't it? It's pretty easy today to get bound up with worry or fear about the way things are going. Things like, what's going to become of the next generation? How are we going to persevere to the end? How is that young believer going to make it? How many people are going to deconstruct their faith? With all the fears, we must ask ourselves, what is the basis of our hope? What is the basis of our hope? Is our hope in our ability to give good training to the next generation? We must do that. But is that where our hope is? Or do we put our trust in our ability to see through all the lies in the culture? Like, well, I'm perceptive. I can see through these things. Do we put our trust in elections? I hope not. Do we frantically scramble about like people on a sinking ship trying to patch all the little holes thinking, if we can just fix all these things, we'll be fine. No, we put our hope in God and in his promises. We put our hope in God and in his promises. We trust that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church because God promised it wouldn't. And he always keeps his promises. We trust that when someone is born again, God will keep them to the end because he promised. He will use good teaching to do that, but our hope is ultimately in God. 
in Psalm 136, there's a phrase that is repeated 26 times. You won't miss it if you read the psalm. His steadfast love endures forever. 26 times. Try reading that psalm out loud. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. Don't worry, I'm not going to say it all 26 times. Some of you are looking nervous. This is what happens when you let the youth pastor preach. But we need all 26 of them, don't we? We need all 26 of them because we are so weak and quick to doubt. We are so quick to hope in what we see and not the unseen fulfillment of God's promises. I think it's so encouraging to think while we don't see the fulfillment of all God's promises right now, he does. He is not bound up by time like we are. In God's view, they're already done. He's already fulfilled them. Of course he's going to keep his promises. They're already fulfilled. He's already kept them. He sees the beginning from the end because he's declared the beginning from the end. He will keep his promises. Even as we, as only we can see, we wait because we can't see them yet only by the eyes of faith. I love that we're near Christmas because there was a long, long time of waiting for Christ to come on that first Christmas. God promised again and again, going all the way back to Genesis 3, that he would send a deliverer, a Messiah, David's greater son. And there was waiting and waiting and waiting for years and years. But then, in the fullness of time, Christ was born because God keeps his promises. Sovereign Grace Music wrote a Christmas song called, O Come All You Unfaithful. It's to the same tune as, O Come All Ye Faithful, and it is filled with such gospel hope for all of us who wait. Just hear some of these lyrics. O come, all you unfaithful, come weak and unstable, come, know you are not alone. O come, barren and waiting ones, weary of praying, come, see what your God has done. Christ is born for you. Christ has come. And we can look back and see God's unfailing kindness, commitment to his promises. But we are also a waiting people, looking forward, waiting for Christ to come again and fulfill all the promise that he has made. We are waiting for our faith to be made sight. And God has not forgotten his promises. He will keep them all. So we wait with hope. So David is looking to fulfill his promise to Jonathan. And here's what happens, verses 2 and 3. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. So they found someone, and it's Jonathan's son. And Ziba says that he is crippled. Earlier in 2 Samuel, we find out how he became crippled. Back in chapter 4, it says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled, in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So when Jonathan and Saul died in battle, Mephibosheth was only five years old, and his nurse took him and ran because she knew this five-year-old now is in danger. The Philistines or anyone who wanted to take the throne would want to kill this little boy. 
So she takes him and runs away, but in her rush, it says Mephibosheth falls, and he is injured to the point where he can no longer walk. So when David hears that this son of Jonathan is still alive, he says in verse 4, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Emil at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Emil at Lodabar. So the picture painted here of Mephibosheth is pretty bleak. In one day, this five-year-old boy went from being son of the prince to being fatherless, and he lost the ability to walk. He went from living in the palace with the king to living essentially as an exile away from his family with a family friend. He's not in Jerusalem anymore for years, 15 to 20 years or so. He's been living in a place called Lodabar. Now, I did not know this. I looked it up. Lodabar means no pasture or no place. So he's literally living in Nowheresville. Nothing to be excited about. He went from palace to no place. And the name Bosheth means shame or shameful thing, which is a pretty good description of his situation. And now, as he's living in no place, he gets a knock on the door and finds out that there are some people sent from King David that are going to take him to Jerusalem to be in front of King David. Now, if I'm Mephibosheth at that point, I'm terrified. I'm thinking, this is it. My family's going to die. We find out later he has a son. He's going to die. We're all going to be killed. And David is going to wipe out any remnant of Saul's family we're done for. And why is he bringing me to the palace? What horrible things does he have in store for me? It must have been a long trip back to Jerusalem for him. But then we read in verse 6, And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? This is amazing kindness. Notice, David calls him by name. This is the first time Mephibosheth's name appears in this chapter. Ziba introduced him as a descendant of Saul who was crippled. But David calls him by name. And then he says those kind words, do not fear. God says, do not fear or fear not more than any other command in the Bible. Those must have been the sweetest sounding words to Mephibosheth. But then it gets better. David says that Mephibosheth is going to get all the land that belonged to Saul and his family that they lost. So we're talking really good land. It all belongs to him now. And not only that, but David says that Mephibosheth is going to eat at his royal table for the rest of his life. He's going to dine with the king as long as he lives. Things just went from really bad to better than he could imagine. Things are better for Mephibosheth now than if Saul was still reigning. And if that was not enough, look at verses 9 and 10. It just keeps going. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and to all his house I've given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. 
So on top of everything else, Mephibosheth is given 36 servants who are going to take care of his newly acquired property, and they're going to bring him the produce of it while he's living and eating at the king's table. That sounds like a bounding kindness, doesn't it? This is not mere contract keeping where I promise this and what is the minimum I can possibly do to fulfill my obligation to Jonathan. This is abounding in kindness. And then the chapter ends, verse 11 through 13. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. That's the fourth time it mentions that. Now he was lame in both his feet. Isn't this a beautiful picture of the grace and loving kindness that God has poured out on us? Look and see if the story of Mephibosheth doesn't sound just like what Paul says about every one of us who are trusting in Christ in Ephesians 2. Look with me. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, you, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were Mephibosheth, dead in our sin, living in a wilderness with no hope. Children of wrath, just waiting. When is God going to wipe his enemies out? When is he going to take us out? Not because we threaten him in any way, but because it's what we deserve. And we weren't just crippled in our feet. We were dead in our sin, unable to do anything to save ourselves. We were born in sin and running headlong into sin. Shame was Mephibosheth's name, and it could have well been ours. That's the story of every believer before they were born again, and every unbeliever. But praise God, the story didn't end there. Look at verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Just like David went and saved Mephibosheth out of the wilderness, so also David's greater son, Jesus, came and saved us. And he calls you by name. If you're in Christ, he calls you by name. Revelation 13.8 says that your name was written in his book before the foundation of the world. Like David called Mephibosheth by name, God knows you. And he, if you're in Christ, he has called you by name. Mephibosheth had nothing to offer God, neither do we. When Ziba said to David, there's this crippled guy from the house of Saul who's still left, David didn't respond, is there anybody else? Somebody with something more to offer? Like, could we find someone who's more like Saul, tall, handsome? I could be seen with him. No, David's response is, where is he? I need to get him here so I can show him the kindness of God. We have nothing to offer God. But in his great grace, he 
saved us. And just like David invited Mephibosheth to eat always at his table, so God invites us to eat with him always. The gospel is an invitation to a feast. You know that. It is. It's God calling us to a banquet. Look at Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Or we see the same thing in Revelation 22 says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root, the descendant of David, the bright morning star, the spirit, and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. When we're here tonight, those of you who are coming for the fifth celebration, the fifth anniversary of the landing, at some point, if you're here, look around and think, this is a picture of the gospel. We have been called to a feast, and we're here at a banquet. It's a small little picture of what will be in heaven. And if you're not trusting in Christ, will you come? Not to the banquet tonight, you can come to that, but I'm talking about come to Jesus. He's inviting you to the banquet. You don't have to live in no place anymore, dead in your sin. The invitation to the feast is for you. doesn't matter what you've done. Christ says it's for you. God sent his only son to die for sinners like you and me and take the wrath that we deserve for our sin and Jesus rose from the dead so that for those who believe in him, there is now no condemnation, only everlasting joy at his table. If you have not trusted in Christ, will you come? Will you trust in him and join the feast that is to come? And if you have already trusted in Christ, like Mephibosheth was taken to be one of the king's own sons, you have been adopted into God's family. He has bought you with his blood, the blood of his son, so that we would be adopted sons and daughters of the king. He's taken you to be his own and be with you forever, and we will be with him forever. We're heirs of Christ who await a glorious inheritance better than Saul's fields. We await a glorious inheritance. So how do we respond to such kindness? Let me end with just three things. First, respond by receiving God's kindness. Respond by receiving God's kindness. Don't belittle the kindness of God by trying to pay him back as if we ever could. Don't say, I'm going to live my life in such a way because God has given so much to me. I'm going to try to pay him back for all that he has done. I'm going to try to not be in such debt because I don't like the feeling of just being a moocher. I'm going to try to give some back and pay him what he deserves. You glorify God by receiving his kindness with joy. We show how great his steadfast love is by enjoying it forever and ever. Be a moocher. Let it pile up higher and higher and higher. And you just say, this is great. We constantly just say, this is great kindness from God. Receive it. 
One author paints a picture of Mephibosheth eating at David's table, and it makes this point. Let me read this. It says, I can only imagine what it must have been like to have dinner at the king's house from that day forward. The grand table is decorated with royal linens and piled high with the finest foods. Servants stand along the walls, military officials and handsome sons enter one by one. Suddenly they rise, for the king is coming. As he approaches the head of the table, they all sit down together. One of the younger boys grabs for the bread, but the king commands, wait. His eyes scan the table, and he says, I don't think we're all here yet. The room grows quiet, and they hear a peculiar noise echoing down the hallway, the sound of clumsy crutches clomping along the stone floors. A moment later, all heads turn. Standing in the doorway is Mephibosheth, the king's adopted son. Perhaps that night, a visiting dignitary from a far country watches the scene with great interest. He leans to a palace guard and whispers, What's all the commotion about the crippled guy? And the guard responds, That crippled guy was born an enemy of the king, but David has chosen to make him his son. But, the visitor protests, I don't understand. The guard smiles. Not many people do. Isn't he a great king? We display the greatness of God, our king, by receiving his unmeasured kindness. And the world watches and says, I don't get it. And we say, I know, isn't he a great king? I don't know why he chose to love me. Isn't he a great king? That he would lavish his kindness on a sinner like me? He's a great king. Second, Respond to God's kindness with worship. Respond to God's kindness with worship. I think we should respond how David responds to seeing God's glory in his creation. In Psalm 8 when he says, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? And then the psalm ends with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's how we respond. With hearts filled with worship or we respond with worship like Micah 7, 18. It says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Respond to God's kindness with hearts filled with worship. Worship our kind king. Last, respond to God's kindness by giving it to others. Respond to God's kindness by giving it to others. God calls us to be like David. We're called to give God's loving kindness to others. In John 13, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Here, Jesus is calling those who trust him to love their brothers and sisters in Christ the way that he has loved us. But we know on top of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're also called to love unbelievers and even those who are our enemies with the love of Christ. So we should do that. We should respond with doing that, which sounds wonderful, but how do you do that? It's not as easy as just saying, well, do it. How did David do it? Here. Well, the Bible gives a lot of answers to that question, but I think we're given an answer in 2 Samuel of how David 
did it? How did David show this steadfast love of God to Mephibosheth? The answer is here. We just have to go back a couple chapters. Before chapter 9 in 2 Samuel 7, David is overwhelmed by God's loving kindness to him. Look at what David says in 2 Samuel 7, 12. Or this is what God says to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, when the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. You see, before David gives God's loving kindness to Mephibosheth, he receives it. He's received it. And David's response to God's kindness is so similar to Mephibosheth's response later in verse 18. This is David's response to God. It says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? That sounds just like what Mephibosheth said. Who am I that you would love a dead dog such as me? And it says, And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind. O Lord God, and what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears." If you want to show the loving kindness of God to those around you, you must first swim in the ocean of God's kindness toward you. You must receive it to give it. So let's make it really practical, really practical. Some of you here today might be having a hard time preparing for Thanksgiving. And I'm not thinking about the food or all that stuff. I'm thinking those who are maybe having a hard time specifically preparing for that person who's going to be at Thanksgiving, who you know is going to say something to deliberately get under your skin. Maybe by God's grace that won't be at your gathering, but for some of you, you're getting ready for that already. And you know they're going to say something. How do you prepare to show God's kindness to that person on Thursday? I'll tell you what you don't do. You don't do the pep talk thing. You know, I'm talking about where you, it's the night before or you're driving to wherever you're going and you start telling yourself things like, I know they're going to say something. I know what they're going to say and I'm not going to react. I'm just going to bite my lip and not say anything. I'm just going to hold it all together. I'm not going to do anything. You picture the look on their face and you imagine what they might say. You just, I'm not going to give in. I'm going to be the bigger person. I'm not going to let them win. I'm going to be kind. That's not the kindness of God. It is polite, and we should be polite, for sure. There's, it's good to be polite, but you don't need the Holy Spirit to be polite. You do need the Holy Spirit to show the loving kindness of God to that person. So how do you do that? How do you get ready? You get ready by soaking in the ocean of God's kindness toward you. That's how you get ready, so that you go to Thanksgiving truly thankful so that you go to Thanksgiving having already feasted on God's kindness toward you. You go to Thanksgiving thinking, I'm just amazed that God would love me. That he would love a sinner like me. And he has shown me so much kindness. 
And so I'm going to show that kindness to others. That's how you get ready. And by God's grace, you, will be, you won't be able to keep from overflowing the kindness of God onto others, even those who mistreat you. you we get ready by soaking in the kindness of God that he has given us. May God give all of us the grace to receive his endless kindness and freely give it to others for his glory and our joy. Let's pray. God, you have been so kind. We don't deserve any bit of it, and you have been so good to us. God, would you help us to receive the kindness that you have shown? Would you help us to worship you? Would you help us to overflow the kindness you've shown us onto others? God, would you help us to see our state as we were? We were Mephibosheth, and would you help us to see what you have done for us? Would you make your name great? Help us now to worship you through singing for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.